As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, wonderful listener. This is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. Thanks for listening. And now, Shifting the Paradigm. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. This is Jimmy Church of Fade to Black, and you are in the future because you're listening to Christina Gomez and Shifting the Paradigm. Howdy, folks. This is Lou Elizondo, and you are listening to my very good friend, Christina Gomez, on Shifting the Paradigm. This is Ray Sobs from the NX Network, and you're listening to Shifting the Paradigm with the intrepid Christina Gomez on the X. You're listening to the NX Network, KUNX DB, Kansas City, Missouri.
Welcome to Shifting the Paradigm. I'm Christina Gomez on the Paradigm Shifts channel and on the X, the UnX network, KUNX digital broadcasting talk radio. Are you ready for this? Because we are about to embark on an hour and a half of UFO shenanigans and paranormal adventures. Right here is where we look and think outside the proverbial box. We jump down those rabbit holes where you get a red Tic Tac instead of a red pill. How is everyone doing today? Viewers on YouTube, listeners on K1X Digital Broadcasting Talk Radio, Twitch viewers, and those catching this on podcast platforms. Hope everyone is doing great and not having a hard time with all of the snow and blizzards going on. Tonight, we'll be talking with Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks program, who hosts right here on KUNX Talk Radio, who is also a researcher, podcaster, author, and co-founder of The Debrief. I'm pumped to hear what he has to say about the current state of the UAP legislative process in Washington, D.C., and what we might expect to see happen in 2022. Also, filmmaker and UFO researcher James Fox is back from Brazil and busy with production of his newest documentary. We'll be talking to him shortly. Talking of snow, I saw lots of chatter on various social media platforms within the last few days, people being shocked by headlines saying that snow and blizzards have hit Hawaii. Oh, I mean, yeah, the instant reaction is what? What? But the truth is, all the snow is happening over 11,000 feet up. So some of those workers in the observatories will be seeing some pretty views. But the rest of Hawaii has been inundated with heavy rain. <laughs> yeah, you have to do a little digging to get beyond those clickbait headlines. And talking of headlines, have you seen the ones mentioning the Chinese lunar probe that's going after something that looks like a, a cube in the distance in one of those pictures taken on the moon recently? Here's one of those pictures for those watching the stream. So in an article on the MSN news site headlined, China moon rover will investigate cube-shaped mystery object on lunar far side. It says... Andrew Jones, a journalist who covers the Chinese space program for Space News and Space.com, highlighted a new rover update in a series of tweets Friday. The nickname for the cube-shaped object translates to Mystery House. The rover team is planning to drive over and get a closer look at the object, end quote. So we'll have to wait and see. That photo doesn't really show anything extraordinary. It's probably a big boulder, but our moon is a mysterious place for sure. 
I read a book recently about the history of something called transient lunar phenomena, which goes back several hundred years and persists even today with lights being seen on the surface and moving sometimes and other strange things. I'll probably do an episode in the future for Mysteries with a History on that topic. But there are a lot of conspiracy theories concerning the moon. Everything from fake moon missions to it being hollow and filled with aliens and alien tech to it being piloted into orbit in antiquity. The internet is awash with such theories. So those of you new to the topic of UFOs and taking a look into all of the many facets of the mystery, you have to be careful and not buy into everything that's out there. But you know, it's not just UFOs. I saw a bizarre viral post originating from TikTok a few days back that accuses the entire Roman Empire of being a hoax perpetrated by the Spanish Inquisition. We live in an amazing time for information sharing, unlike any other time in history. Instant access to news taking place from all across the planet, reaching our phones and laptops as it happens. But the internet certainly has its bizarre side. What's your favorite UFO documentary? I'll tell you mine. And that one was instrumental in getting me to get more involved to look into the mystery. And that was Out of the Blue by filmmaker James Fox, released in 2003. That was so impactful that I still point newbies to the UFO topic to watch it as part of a recommended viewing hints. James has made a huge contribution to the UFO research community and to the public interest in the mystery with such other documentaries as his 1997 production, UFOs, 50 Years of Denial, through to I Know What I Saw in 2009, and the hugely successful and well-received The Phenomenon, released in 2020. To tell us all about his latest project, here is James Fox. James, thanks so much for joining me here tonight. I've been excited to hear all about your current research project, which is for your forthcoming documentary. You've been in Brazil filming for this story, which concerns the crash of a UFO and sightings of its occupants by many witnesses. What more can you tell us about the case in advance of your documentary? It is the Roswell of Brazil. I didn't believe this incident happened just because it's so fantastic. It's so, I can't even find a word in the English language. If I can ask your audience for a moment, to suspend judgment and just imagine if a ufo crashed and the aliens or the beings the creatures whatever you want to call them survived the impact 
and we're seen roaming around a town, okay, alive in broad daylight by multiple recovery act. And I understand how this story is met with, um, you know, laughter or dismissal because I had done that myself. But I've been there four times now, and um, that was some very compelling witnesses, very compelling, both military and civilian. So I, I think that um, this is one of the most extraordinary cases I've ever looked into because I actually believe, believe it or not, I actually believe now that it happened. And I think that the, um, I think the, that the film is going to speak for itself. In fact, I, I, I had some people doing an interview with me a couple of weeks ago um, for a news network and they were like, Oh, I want to hear about your trip to Brazil. And I said, hey, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and not share any of that with you. They're like, why not? I'm like, because you're, you're going to think that I'm crazy. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I, I'm rambling at this point. But, yeah, I, that's that's basically it. It's, it's the Roswell of Brazil, but it happened in 1996. So most of the people that were involved are still around. And Brazil is a huge country with a lot of it being uninhabited in rainforests. And we don't get to hear much about current UFO news from there. Is it a very active part of the world for UFO sightings? So 1957, Ubatuba, uh, an alleged UFO crash with debris, materials recovered. I think that was in 1957. 1958, you've got Trinidad, which is a photograph taken on a Navy vessel of a UFO over an island. Um, you got in the 70s, you've got this case, uh, Operación Plato, which is basically UFOs sending beams of light down to the ground and also includes some close encounters of the third kind. Fascinating case. And then, of course, in 86, you've got this massive flyover of Sao Paulo. It's commonly referred to as the night of UFOs. And there were little objects described as Tic Tacs that were whizzing around with impunity in the in the airspace they were picked up on radar and photographed and they scrambled jets it was very similar to the testimony you hear from the radar guys as well as the pilots it's very similar to what you heard you know 200 miles off the coast of san diego in 2004 with with fravor and and the other pilot i mean it's like amazing the the, the parallels and then in 1996 10 years later you get this alleged crash which is called the Virginia UFO incident of 19, January of 1996. So they've got some extraordinary cases. And those are just some of the more recent, uh, you know, more prominent cases. But yeah, it's, it's rich with, with fascinating cases. And these cases where alleged crashes occur and there uh, are retrievals, is that by the Brazilian government exclusively or were others involved? That was one of my primary objectives was a shed some light on on this case and find out if really it did happen and two if it did happen where did the stuff go and um, i'm i'm pretty confident that the americans uh, i would say with 99.9 percent .9 certainty that the americans were involved and i know that because i interviewed military guys at the different bases where they said american jets and helicopters came in right at the time where, where it would have been relevant and 
Also, there's a radar operator that saw the planes coming in that was operating radar in, in Sao Paulo, which is the uh, the, the, um, the the biggest city in, in, in Brazil. Brasilia is the actual capital. But in any case, um, so yeah, I'm concerned. I, I know that the Americans were involved. I know there was debris and, and bodies recovered. And, uh, and, and and according to all the witnesses that I spoke to in Brazil, and I asked them all this question, that it went to the United States. And what other smoking gun cases in Brazil that are just waiting to be looked at by the people from other countries? And, and I, what I mean people, I mean civilians. A bunch that are pretty damn compelling. I mean, there were statements made by General, General Lima in 1986 at a press conference where they basically said UFOs are real, you know. They shared some of the radar data and, and uh, interviewed the pilots in uniform. Um, you know, quite extraordinary, actually, that, that this, this stuff happened there. And, and very little is known. Very little is known about the Virginia UFO incident. That's a smoking gun incident. I mean, look, you know, we know there are photographs and video footage. And, uh, you know, you can imagine um, the efforts uh, uh, I'm, you know, taking to secure some of that evidence you know um don't think for a moment that i'm not you know doing whatever taking whatever steps necessary um but you know and, and but there are a lot of other cases that are really compelling too i mean it's an older case but opera from plateau I'm trying to remember the name of the series of islands um it'll come to me of course after the interview i'm sure but anyway it's it's, it's in the 70s your audience can look it up um with evidence. I mean, Ubatuba's got metal fragments from 19, I think it's 57. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of cases, uh, very compelling cases with evidence that, that uh, you know, um, internationally, I think as little is known. And while you were there, did you learn of any current hotspots? No, nope. I put a laser-like focus on, on Virginia, to be quite honest with you. That's what I was there for. When can we look forward to the release of your new production? Um, this the next year, uh, probably uh, spring or summer of next year, two thousand twenty-two. And I can say so far, I don't think people are going to be disappointed. I'd never turned a film around this quickly before in my life, but I thought, you know, I could find a formula, and I think I can apply that formula to future projects and crank out a a, a doc a year. Um. And uh, it looks like, uh, you know, it's working. And where can people go and follow your progress? Like what, what social media can they follow you on? I, uh, I've been doing very little social media lately just because I'm so busy in the edit room. Um, so busy. You'd probably, you know, be better to point your audience in the, in the direction. I mean, I do, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, but I barely put anything up lately. I'm just, I'm just working, you know. I'm working like, you know, I was at 4.30 in the morning the last couple of nights editing away. So, I, I, you know, social media stuff I'll probably focus on once the film is done and I'm out, you know, promoting it. I mean, there is Instagram and, you know, Twitter, but, you know, I, a couple times a month maybe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think my time is better spent in the edit room getting the film done. I totally understand that. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing it when it comes out and um, have you on for a full show by then. I'll get you a sneak peek. Thanks, James. Yeah, all right. Be in touch. You're listening to the UnX Network. KUNX DB, Kansas City, Missouri. I'm so looking forward to that documentary. Okay. 
So from James Fox to Micah Hanks, Micah Hanks is here joining us tonight for a fascinating discussion, reviewing some of the key events from 2021 regarding the UAP topic as being dealt with in the nation's capital to what we might see happen in 2022. Welcome back to Shifting the Paradigm, Micah. How are you? It is fantastic to be here. As always, we keep running into each other, so I don't think that's a bad thing. We'd call that a high-class problem, right? We sure do. <laughs> and we've chatted here before, not only about your various platforms as a writer and a podcaster, but also dive deep into your research in the UAP and Sasquatch phenomena. I've received so much awesome feedback from my young subscriber base on the insights as well that thought out overviews that you have on the UFO mystery. And so as we draw close to the end of this year, I really wanted to go over the events and milestones of the last 12 months and where you think we are at currently in this almost cat and mouse game of seeking the truth and what 2022 may hold based on the things that have transpired both politically and sociologically during this last year. So let's start by casting our minds back to those dizzy few months of daily UFO coverage, interviews, and debates on the mainstream news network leading up to the release of the ODNI preliminary UFO report. What do you remember most from that time period? And what stuck out for you as being an advancement in the discussion and public reaction? Well, that's a good question. I think what I remember the most acutely is probably the eye strain from all the reading that was required at that time. And uh, when we got on the uh, microphone here today, I asked Christina, I said, you mind if I just wear my glasses? Because, you know, I'm still experiencing the residuum from that. But all kidding aside, I mean, there, there was obviously a lot of anticipation leading up to uh, the publication of the ODNI report. And uh, you and I recently did an uh, interview with our friend Jim Harold. And uh, I had referred to that report at that time as kind of like a Rorschach test. I'm sure many have referred to it like that, especially on account of the fact that everybody seemed to take something a little different away from their reading of that report. And to me, what it really represented, again, most of the UFO community was kind of, you know, put out with it. They were looking at it and saying, you know, OK, well, great. The government's finally getting up to speed on a issue that we have recognized and taken seriously for decades. And in fact, many would suppose that the government had too, but they just weren't forthcoming about it. Uh, we can actually speak to that point here in a moment. But, uh, you know, for my own part, uh, although I agreed to an uh, extent with the UFO community, I mean, being someone who's looked deeply at the history of this topic myself, obviously we didn't learn all that much from the report, uh, but it did convey a few things uh, that were you know, again, primarily to me indicative of to what extent the government and how broadly government agencies are cooperating uh, to try and resolve questions that we have about UAP. So, yes, we do know, of course, they're looking at it. That much was indicated by virtue simply of the UAPTF being involved in producing this report. I was astonished that it arrived on time. We had seen pre-reporting at the Politico Brian Bender noting that, again, many um, intelligence agencies appeared to be, and the term that uh, Bender used was stiff-arming uh, the UAP task force within the Navy because they essentially didn't want to have to you know, hand over what data they were collecting on UAP, and there are a variety of reasons we could suppose that might be. But um, to our surprise, it arrived on time, and the most striking thing I think that it's really conveyed to us was essentially that 
you know, our military, especially the Navy, but the U.S. Air Force, you know, again, after trying to hold off and limit how much involvement they would have, considering that they spent almost two decades looking at this problem in the 1950s and 60s with Project Blue Book, the longest systematic, you know, undertaking with regard to UAP ever, you know, performed by a military body or within our government period. It's no surprise that the U.S. Air Force didn't want to have to get back into the game, but they did. And that really, primarily within just the last couple of years, we saw 144 instances where there were objects that could not be identified uh, without lend, you know, lending too much in terms of speculations about what it might be. We never saw the word extraterrestrial in that report. But of course, it did seem to convey that these were real tangible objects. In fact, that kind of wording appeared in the report Uh there were, of course, allotments, you know, made for the idea that some may be natural phenomena. Certainly some may actually belong to foreign adversarial governments like China or Russia. But uh, really, as a kind of, uh, you know, like a like a dessert to the ODNI report, in recent days, we saw Avril Haines, DNI director, uh, who was at this event in Washington at the National Cathedral. And um, DNI Haines said, look, it's obvious we had that other category in the report too. And it's pretty obvious. We've got some things that we can't identify. We don't know everything that's in our skies. Uh, there are a lot of different ways that we may learn what these things are, but she said, and this was remarkable to me, even right down to body language, because she sort of almost choked or stumbled a little as she said the word, but she said, we must leave open the possibility that some of these things may come extraterrestrially. And so in terms of what I remember, I mean, the ODNI report really was the clearest statement we have seen from government in decades on the reality of UAP. For that reason, I found it incredibly significant. And even though it was six pages, as, you know, I've been told by our colleague, uh, John Greenwald Jr. of the Black Vault, the classified version of the report, which we haven't seen, but, you know, he has been doing some digging in regard to, you know, how long it was. It was only a few pages longer than the one that we saw. So it couldn't have contained that much more information. But again, it still is a very clear statement. UAP exists. Our military encounters them frequently, at least 144 instances. And most of those collected within the last couple of years, which is very important. And so all of that, of course, leading up to where we are right now, because the same day that that was issued, coming back to your question, what do I remember most acutely? There was also the memorandum that Kathleen Hicks, Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, had issued coinciding with the ODNI report. In fact, a lot of things coincided with that report. We saw a fact page appear at NASA's website about UAP as well. But the memorandum by uh, Kathleen Hicks essentially said, look, you know, our military takes very seriously these aerial incursions into our controlled airspace where military operations, training exercises, et cetera, are being carried out. And we want to coordinate with other agencies and you know, be proactive in terms of looking at this uh, in, and in terms of what the future military response to the UAP issue will be. Because as stated in that preliminary assessment, it's a challenge to national security and whether directly or indirectly, it may pose a threat to aviators, both civilian and military. So we essentially had a six-month time span that we were expecting to see something come to pass. But as we are currently awaiting, as of when you and I are speaking right now, the Senate has stalled on the passage of the Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022. Anybody wondering, by the way, that's just a great big defense spending bill to the tune of about, you know, 700 plus billion dollars, I think, that gets passed every single year and which is what funds, you know, all aspects of the military annually. And we've passed, you know, dozens of them over the last several, you know, decades. But um, with the passage of this bill, there was an amendment that was proposed 
And so if the bill passes and when it does, we're all going to be watching like hawks to see if some version of this amendment appears in it. But the amendment was filed by Senator Gillibrand, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, and it outlined the establishment of what she termed the Anomaly Surveillance and Resolution Office, or ASRO. And we were all really excited because this was the most comprehensively worded, I mean, anything we've ever seen with regard to legislation in U.S. government related to UAP. Much to our surprise, we haven't even seen the uh, Defense Authorization Act passed. It's it's still stalling in the Senate right now for various reasons not related to that amendment, by the way. But we saw last week the, uh, actually, I guess it was more than a week ago, uh, the DOD has now launched its own Office of UAP Investigations with a less than memorable, barely pronounceable uh, pronounceable name. And, uh, and so many are looking at this and saying, okay, well, we expected this would happen, but the fact that it has occurred right before the Senate, you know, took off for Thanksgiving, literally on the day before the holiday break begins. I mean, many are saying, is this a challenge to what they're trying to do in Congress? And so we're kind of seeing Congress and the DOD locking horns over what the future of UAP investigations will be. So let's just say, uh, to your point, Christina, it was a very memorable last few months. Um, I still have the eye strain because it's you know, requires daily reading about this so much to try and keep up with all of the developments. And there certainly is a lot going on. Really, I, I had it with cat and mouse game. It seems like there is a fight going on in the background and we're just seeing glimpses of it. We are coming up against a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, wonderful listener, this is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review, and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. Alternative talk you can trust. The X. Howdy folks, this is Lou Elizondo and you are listening to my very good friend Christina Gomez on Shifting the Paradigm. Hi, I'm Micah Hanks and let me tell you something, I support Christina Gomez as a Patreon subscriber and here's why you should too. She brings all of her unique insights to a whole new generation and all while she's also going through college. Listen, support Christina, become a Patreon subscriber today. You won't regret it. Hey there, it's Christina. Did you know you can get access to an exclusive extra segment of additional questions and answers with all of my guests, as well as behind the scene videos and photos? Ever wonder how I turn my small college dorm apartment into a studio where I can shoot new videos or set up lighting and backdrops for my show or what camera I use? Yep, that video is there too, where I explain as I go along and also give the story of how I learned to do special video effects and editing. You can get access to all of that and much more by joining my Patreon supporters club. 
you'll be helping by supporting this channel, my research, and production costs, as well as investing in new shows coming soon. Starting from as little as $5 a month, there are several tiers you can choose from that suit your budget, and each tier carries extra perks and benefits. Join my Patreon club and become a supporter today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Jimmy Church of Fade to Black. And you are in the future because you're listening to Christina Gomez and Shifting the Paradigm. Here we are with Micah Hanks today. During those few months prior to the issue of the report, did you notice an uptick in interest in people reaching out to you for your opinion and an increase in, in listeners or viewers across your media platforms? Certainly. And of course, you know, you being a part of one of those media platforms, you know, part of the debrief family, but they're at the debrief.org. Naturally, I mean, we're always in correspondence with people, you know, in Washington, you know, people in the scientific community. You know, civilian researchers who have followed UFOs. Um, you know, I'm also a member of an organization, merely an associate member, because I'm not a scientist myself. I'm a journalist, but uh, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. I consider this to be a very important group. And in fact, in that last segment uh, that we were discussing this proposed amendment by uh, Senator Gillibrand of New York, Part of what was outlined in that very comprehensive wording in that proposed amendment was that there would be an advisory panel to help oversee her proposed ASRO. And uh, this was to be comprised of members of both uh, the intelligence community, but also civilian organizations. A couple of those organizations included uh, Harvard uh, University's, uh, well, actually, it's Avi Loeb of Harvard University, who is the director of 
a separate project. That's, of course, the Galileo project. So a couple of members from that project were to be on this panel. And also it calls for a couple of members from the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. Uh, so I'm, I'm very proud to see that, you know, that organization, civilians who are scientists primarily or science minded proponents of this scientific study of UAP, uh, that they could potentially, if this ends up being passed into law and may still uh, play some degree of role in oversight for this organization. But again, more broadly speaking, yeah, I was getting a lot of of feedback and a lot of correspondence and communication uh, from all of the aforementioned, you know, people in the sciences, people in media. And that dialogue is still ongoing, Christina, because there's tremendous amounts of interest, tremendous amounts of, of intrigue, a whole lot of questions about where we're going from here. And, you know, one fundamental point I should really raise, and this is one that I've been in communication with scientists, with defense experts, uh, with uh, secretary, uh, you know, press secretaries for different senators. I've contacted the offices of every single senator who has co-sponsored the Gillibrand Amendment, by the way, in the last 24 hours. Um, you know, something that I think everybody is really wondering about right now is, if, depending on which iteration of the UAP investigative component we see in government going ahead, if it's what has just been established by the DOD, which they call the AOIMSG, that's Airborne Object Identification and Management and Synchronization Group, I believe. Try saying that three times fast. But the uh, if it's that group, then will there be, in addition to oversight, will there be annual reporting to Congress? Will there be... Um, semi-annual updates, and very significantly, will there be unclassified versions of these reports that the public can read, as we saw with the UAP task force report delivered to the ODNI back in June? Um, personally, as a member of the media, as a longtime proponent of the scientific study of UFOs and someone who has taken a very deep dive into the history of this phenomenon, I am worried. I am concerned about whether or not there will be enough transparency with the DOD's current AOI, uh, MSG. And I think that's an, a, an issue and a concern that many I'm talking with are sharing right now. Can you go into a little bit more depth about what you fear when it comes to that? Well, again, you know, we want accountability in government. And, you know, when we, the, the people, right, uh, when we elect officials to represent us and to, you know, go to Washington on our behalf and to, you know, pass legislation that has, uh, in mind, the beliefs, the values, the desires, the needs of the citizenry. Th this is a fundamental par uh, part of how a democracy works, and uh, or at very least a democratic republic. But I think it's very important that when it comes to an issue, I mean, look, let's just put it all out there. UAP, we don't know what these things are. And I, I get this from people all the time. Yeah, you do. Come on. There's nothing that they could be other than extraterrestrials. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time right now talking about all the things UAP could be. I'm just going to say, although we have not conclusively determined without any further question what UAP are, there is a strong case to be made that these represent a kind of technology. Um, two, that it's a very advanced technology, one that we don't fully understand and that based on our observations of it, even with sophisticated tracking equipment utilized by the military, for instance, that we still can't quite unravel exactly what it is or how it works. And thereby, three, there's a good chance it's an exotic technology. And if it's so exotic that we can't identify it, there's probably a good chance that it's not ours. And therefore, of course, one of the long-held contentions has been for decades and remains today that we could be 
emphasis on could, we could be looking at extraterrestrial technologies. And again, this is something that we must take into consideration in the range of possibilities. But it also may be the case, and in fact is very likely the case, that UAP, what we call UAP, may actually be several things. Some may be these exotic technologies like I've described. Some may be surveillance platforms that are used by Russia or China or someone else, or maybe even some could be experimental U.S. technologies. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that these technologies could represent, but let's stick with extraterrestrial for a moment. If that is what we're dealing with, as has been long maintained by proponents of this phenomenon who have studied it and who have said and argued kind of like I have, all the way back in 1947, when people were seeing similar things, did the Soviets have that? Was Stalin cooking up flying saucers over there? You know, was this captured Nazi technology? Are they ours? I mean, after all these decades, you'd think we would know by now if that were the case. And maybe that's a bit presumptive on my part, but I think it's a pretty good presumption. And I think it's a very relevant one in terms of the historical argument about all this. If we are dealing with extraterrestrial technologies and our government is capable. The United States government is the most capable of collecting data about this and furthering our knowledge. Don't we have a right to know, not just U.S. citizens, but don't the people of the world have a right to know? And this is one reason, just with, with regard to this topic, why there has to be accountability, transparency, oversight, right, with regard to how the government operates and collects information, and more importantly, how it actually shares that information with the public. That's what concerns me right now. If we look at what's proposed in the Gillibrand Amendment, we're supposed to see reporting to Congress, at least an annual report, semi-annual briefings provided to Congress. Now, that's going to be classified, but there are also provisions for uh, you know, unclassified versions of that information to be provided uh, to the public. So at very least, you know, we out here in the civilian sector, we get at least a general idea of what this all entails, much as we saw with the ODNI report back in June. Uh, there, to my knowledge, are currently, and this may change, again, I, I do want to give the DOD the benefit of the doubt uh, to an extent, Um that maybe in the days ahead, we will see similar provisions with their newly established office. But currently, there's been nothing said about that. And until we have been told, look, yeah, we're going to share some information with the public, I'm going to remain concerned. I'm also going to try and remain as vigilant as possible in terms of putting uh, pressure on uh, lawmakers, uh, on members of the government, both those whom we elect and also those who are appointed in the what we might call the military you know, bureaucracy. And I think it's very important that other people consider doing that, too. One simple way you can do this, contact your senators, contact your congressmen, contact your elected officials and let them know how you feel about this. Now, let me just point out something else really important, Christine, and this is a bit of a, a exclusive for you here, because, as I'd mentioned, I've been contacting uh, virtually all the senators who have uh, co-sponsored Gillibrand's proposed amendment. And moments before we jumped on the air here, I received a response from the press secretary uh, at Gillibrand's office. And this is the official statement that they just gave me about the DOD's newly established group. And I quote, while we appreciate DOD's attention to the issue, the AOIMSG doesn't go nearly far enough to help us better understand the data we are gathering on UAPs. Senator Gillibrand and Representative Gallagher's framework does much more to address the UAP issue while also maintaining public oversight. The legislation covers civilian oversight and establishes an advisory committee 
which would bring in experts and academics outside the government to participate in ongoing uh, investigations. So that's the quote I was provided. And again, I think if we've got Gillibrand herself saying, oh, you know, we're a little concerned about what the DOD just established. We think our version's better and we haven't had a chance to pass this into law. That should be the clearest indication I can provide that we, the people, should also share those concerns. It's good that they publicly recognize this and awesome that you got that quote from them. Out of all of the interest the subject was getting, was there any particular media outlet here in the U.S. or abroad that covered the topic in a favorable light that really surprised you? You mean in terms of media coverage that was supportive of the past or the DOD's establishment of the new uh, group? Yes, but not just that, but also even the um, UAP preliminary report as well, just like the overall topic as a whole. You know, um, there have been some outlets that were fairly favorable about it. Uh, you know, I'll also mention that uh, there was an article by uh, Professor Chris MP of Arizona State University, I believe. Uh, Chris MP is a, a fantastic astronomer. He actually was on the Micah Hanks program with me, my podcast. One of the very few scientists after and even before that report appeared who had weighed in on this topic and said, yeah, we do need to be studying UAP. But Chris wrote an article for the uh, conversation, and I think it had been republished in certain other outlets. And he had essentially said, you know, um, they didn't use the E word extraterrestrial, but I mean, this definitely is a good cause. I mean, a good case, you know, this laid out this report for why scientists should be studying this. And again, I think it's pretty evident that commentary from those like Chris MP and others, you, you know, seeing scientists, some of them saying, look, you know, it's time that we lift this stigma as much as the military has said that needs to happen here in the science community. It needs to happen as well. We need to remove these stigmas that make it, you know, career suicide for people to talk about this and to express interest in it. And God forbid, actually say that maybe scientists should be studying these phenomena. Again, once we began to see that, it was just weeks before Avi Loeb was also chiming in, you know, and he'd probably written about this even earlier, considering the fact he'd written this book called Extraterrestrial, which talks about the possibility uh, that the Oumuamua, the mysterious space rock that was observed first, I guess, just a few years ago, I mean, might have been some sort of an alien probe. I think that's generally the, uh, the idea that Avi proposes. Once the ODNI report came out, he said, look, you know, whether it's something like Oumuamua, or whether it's these things that appear in these videos that our Navy pilots have been filming, you know, we really need to be looking seriously at the possibility that these may be extraterrestrial drones or some other kinds of probes, you know, some sort of, of you know, technologies that are here, maybe autonomously controlled, you know, maybe these are uh, actually remotely controlled from elsewhere. Um, maybe these things are artificial intelligence, you know, sent here by extraterrestrials, but whatever they are, they should be studied. So, there certainly were some outlets that uh, I think were favorable in terms of what the ODNI report uh, said. Uh, more recently, of course, the debrief, of course, also covered uh, this. And although I don't know that we necessarily came out with an op-ed that Sunday and said, we support the UAP task force. You know, we, we try to maintain a journalistic balance. So we reported on it and analyzed it. Uh, Tim McMillan and I broke the story about it, uh, uh, when it when it actually appeared online. Uh, what it entailed and what that meant. He offered an analytical piece the following weekend. And then the week thereafter, I also uh, aired some minor concerns, but also did some analysis in the intelligence brief newsletter that I write. So we also chimed in on it. But in recent days, with regard to the DOD's newly established group, and also, of course, whether this is going to be in conflict with the Gillibrand Amendment, 
as we just heard from Gillibrand's office, they have some concerns. Interestingly, uh, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida uh, issued a statement just a few days ago saying that he uh, essentially supports any effort by our military uh, to look at UAP. So I think reading between the lines, Rubio would probably prefer the Gillibrand Amendment be passed into law. But uh, he has nonetheless said, really, in whatever form it takes, our military should be looking at this. So, you know, we've seen both, I think, good and also some more questionable responses to both of these developments, as you would expect with anything. And Micah, you mentioned the UAPTF, and on November 23rd, it was announced that the AOI-MSG, which is the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, would take over the UAPTF. So can you give us some background on the inception and history of the UAPTF, which stands for the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, and if there is any public record of what they have achieved while active, aside from their role in the UAP report? Okay, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, back in, I guess it was the summer of 2020, uh, there was a bill that, uh, again, the author, this would be attributed to Marco Rubio. I believe he was the ranking member there with the Senate Intelligence Committee at that time. Uh, but there had been a bill which was essentially a report on proposed legislation, and this all having to do with the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, uh, the one that's currently actually uh, you know, enacted. But uh, at that time, it was still proposed. <clears throat> In this Senate report, uh, it there was a section uh, that dealt with unidentified aerial threats, and it said in that portion of the document, uh, the the committee supports the efforts of the UAP task force. And that was very interesting because at that time we didn't know that there was a UAP task force, although there had been some references prior to the appearance of that report online uh, made to a task force. In fact, to my knowledge, the first place where the word UAP task force actually appeared was at the website of the Black Vault that John, Green, uh, John Greenwald Jr. runs. Now, it's not because they had announced to him that there was a, and again, quote, UAP task force. What it was was that there had been initially a statement released by Susan Goff, Pentagon spokeswoman, uh, to uh, researcher Roger Glassell, uh, talking about an interagency task force that dealt with a variety of different aerial incursions that were looking into these issues that we're discussing. So that had been the first, to my knowledge, and the earliest reference to a task force having something to do with UAP. John Greenwald took it from there and was following up thereafter, and he had actually referred to a UAP task force uh, at his website before anything ever appeared in print coming out of Washington. That report is very interesting in that regard because at that time there hadn't officially been the establishment of a UAP task force. There had been references to this interagency task force, but never given any name. And then we had a similar release that appeared at the uh, uh, defense.gov website uh, weeks after this report appeared, okay, which said uh, that, you know, announcing the establishment of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force within the Navy. So the announcement about the establishment of the task force followed both the appearance in print that the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee was supporting the efforts of the UAP task force and these hints about there being a task force that even predated that. It was kind of interesting, the timeline, and it makes you wonder, had there been some sort of informal operation in government 
and they decided to give it a new name. It's still a little shaky, a little murky to me. You know, some would also say that essentially the informal Pentagon initiative that we now know as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, that essentially the UAP task force is the continuation of that, but with a different name and moved over into the uh, Department of the Navy. Whatever the case may be, the UAP task force uh, has been operating since the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021 was passed into law. Uh, and to my understanding, I guess it would probably still currently, as of right now, be operative only because now that the DOD has announced the establishment of the AOIMSG, uh, which is, and it states in its release from a few days ago, that it is to be the successor of the UAP task force. So what we're supposed to see here is a clean break. I was on Coast to Coast AM recently, and uh, Richard Searitt, the host, asked, are we going to have the UAP task force working with this other one? And are there going to be all these competing agencies? No. The UAP task force's mission will conclude with the operation beginning of the uh, AOIMSG. However, uh, I'm not sure that the latter agency has had a director appointed yet or that it is actually operative. So whenever it does become operational, it will take over the duties of the task force and presumably expound on those. Uh, it, there should be quite an expansion of, of what's being done because keep in mind, the UAP task force is a very short staffed. I mean, just a couple of individuals who have day jobs and in their spare time, they're also compiling data on UAP. It, it is a good thing that the DOD has an entire group devoted to this now, but the remaining questions that I've already raised about, you know, what kind of accountability, what kind of transparency, you know, what kind of oversight. We do know that there's supposed to be an oversight group, which briefly, let me jump over here in my uh, browser, see if I can find. No, I don't have it pulled up right now, actually, but take my word for it. There's an advisory committee that's going to, it's uh, the uh, acronym is uh, AOIMEXEC, I believe. <laughs> I can remember that much. And one last point about these less than memorable names in my opinion, and this is another issue with these newly founded uh, entities within the DoD, I think the names are intended to be barely pronounceable and certainly less than memorable. And I think that one reason for that is that, again, the history of government involvement in UAP investigations has shown us one thing. This is a difficult issue. We haven't been able to resolve it. No uh, government entity, no branch of the military wants to have to be tasked with dealing with this. And at all costs, the government tries to direct as much attention away from this topic when and where they can. And so I think giving it a really bizarre name, even we, I, we had uh, Representative Tim uh, Burchard uh, talking about this the other day uh, out of Tennessee. And he said, I don't know where they got that name. I think the name is obviously intended to try and keep people from talking to what extent they can about this issue, because the military traditionally has hated having to deal with it. The way you say that, it, it does make sense. I mean, these names are rather bizarre. They're a mouthful. And it kind of makes you want to avoid the topic altogether just because it's hard to say it. But then you also have ATIP, OSAP, and even Project Blue Book. Those are a lot easier to say. Why, in your opinion, do you think that, I guess, back in the day, it was easier versus today when we think that we're getting more transparency. However, these new offices are a lot more complex in their names. Right. Project Blue Book, again, it's it's typical that um, in, 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 in general, when you have like a an operation, you know, a investigative branch or, you know, or an entity that you're going to have a 
you know, a name that is given. You know, this often involves also an unclassified nickname. For instance, I'll give you a quick example. In, in the New York Times in 2017, when it was announced that there was an ATIP program and that $22 million had been appropriated uh, for UAP investigations, you know, it's, that, that was certainly true. But what we've come to learn, of course, Tim McMillan had written an article about this that was uh, published in Popular Mechanics even prior to the establishment of the debrief. And also, we've more recently seen a book co-authored by James Lukatsky, who was the, essentially the man who ran the OSAP program out of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is a combat support agency to the DOD. Uh, Lukatsky and co-authors uh, Colm Kelleher and veteran reporter George Knapp they state in that book, of course, that the real program had been OSAP, Advanced Aerospace Weapons uh, Systems Application Program, right? Again, it's trying to remember all these <laughs> different uh, acronyms. But OSAP had been the actual program for which the appropriated funding had been, had, you know, had been designed. That, that program uh, had, that, that was the one that actually ran and for which, you know, funding was provided. It only ran for a couple of years. At some point, however, because... Senator Harry Reid had been involved with attempting to try and get its, uh, you know, special access status. Uh, and it had been decided at that time that they didn't want to refer to it by its classified name. So they gave it a unclassified nickname, which appeared in a letter by Senator Reid. And that unclassified nickname had been ATIP. OK, ATIP then thereafter, as we understand it, uh, was borrowed for an informal initiative at the Pentagon, different kind of thing. And this was presumably the one that was headed by Lou Elizondo. As you can imagine... This led to a lot of confusion, um, but this is, the, you know, often the way that these things work. And I'm no expert on code names and policy and what have you. But all that to say, coming back to the very memorable project Blue Book, I mean, it was just a code name for this project that oversaw UFOs. The name itself seemed to have very little to do with the idea of UFOs. Although there have been historical researchers like Barry Greenwood, uh, Larry Fawcett, and others who have noted that. There have been a lot of different programs that have, as the first word of a two-word name, uh, Blue Book, Blue Beam, Blue Fly. Uh, there are a lot of different like names for programs that have that first word, uh, Blue, followed by something. And so one supposition had been that um, one uh, that, 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 that project names that had the word Blue preceding something else might have to do with air, might have to do with, you know, aerospace, sky, or maybe more explicitly having to do something with UFOs. Now, I don't know that that's ever been proven, but that was a speculation that had been you know, offered years ago about UFO uh, investigative efforts by the government. And we know that there have you know, been a few others you know, throughout the years, but in terms of why the names become more and more complex, I mean, again, if we look at the establishment of ALSAP, essentially the name that was given to that program they wanted, if a civilian were to read it, they wouldn't. The first thing that comes to mind isn't UFO. But as Lukatsky has stated emphatically, I mean, that was a UFO investigative agency. I mean, the OSAP the program looked at UAP. However, it also looked at a range of different, you know, what we might call paranormal phenomena that were purportedly associated with UFOs, which in my personal, my humble opinion, some of that gets a little outside of serious nuts and bolts UAP study. So, but again, it's it's a really complex situation trying to understand all the different nicknames, why they are attributed to these programs, what they mean or don't mean. One thing seems pretty clear about the AOI MSG. It's one of the most complex we've seen yet. That's probably intentional. Maybe. Micah, we are coming up against another break. I'm learning so much. We will be right back after this. 
You're listening to the UnX Network. KUNX DB, Kansas City, Missouri. Hi. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Race Hobbs, head of programming at the new Unex Network. And you're locked on Shifting the, the Paradigm with the intrepid Christina Gomez. On, on the X. Hey, wonderful listener, this is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review, and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. This is Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks program right here on KUNX. And right now, you're having your paradigm shifted by the one and only Christina Gomez. Welcome back. We were just talking about the UAPTF and other office names. So getting back to the ODNI UAP report, we talked briefly on another show here on Shifting the Paradigm about what you anticipated and what your reaction was to the report when it was released. In the months since the June release, have you changed your mind about the report in any way or have new insights or nuggets on how it was prepared or how important it was? You know, it's interesting because one of the, the lingering questions after the ODNI report appeared, it mentions 144 instances of UAP, but it doesn't give any real details about those apart from, I mean, it's all essentially generalizations. Um, some of those generalizations do give us some idea about you know, what kind of information was being collected. For instance, there were more than 80 instances of the 144 uh, referenced in the report where multi-sensor data was collected. You know, we may have radar, we may have a number of different sensory systems, you know, there may be video. And of course, there may be, presumably there almost would always be some observational component, but there may be, I mean, line of sight 
you know, witnesses who are observing an object, a light in the sky while it's being tracked on radar and other things are happening. So um, we definitely know a lot about what the the UAP task force was provided details about. And in the cases where UAP were observed, what was considered a good UFO report, a good UAP report, I guess, to borrow the uh, the term that the military prefers to use now. Something else that was interesting about the report <clears throat> had been the fact that it stated, for instance, that the FAA uh, provides data to the UAP task force. Now, the official statement that the FAA has always given about UFOs traditionally is that it doesn't investigate that, doesn't look at those. Again, this is a recurring motif, as I've pointed out earlier. Government agencies across the board generally want as little to do with this topic as possible. They don't want to have to answer questions. They don't want to have to have any kind of investigative involvement. Um, even after the ODNI report appeared in June, um, a number of outlets reported on the fact that the FAA continued to say, contrary to what appeared in the report, that it didn't collect information on UFOs or investigate them. Um, I continued to follow up with the FAA and worked with about two or three different spokespeople and finally was offered a statement. We reported on this at the debrief.org uh, that the FAA did finally say, yes, we do collect information on unidentified fl uh, flying objects. They still use that expression for them. And they said, and we do pass this information off to the UAP task force when a pilot observation is corroborated by radar or other data. So again, the, the military and other agencies which are supporting the UAP task, task force's efforts and presumably also the AOIMSG thereafter, basically what is a good UFO report to them is the observation corroborated by data. And that data related to systems that can independently verify or that can you know, correlate the sighting, the actual visual sighting, uh, and corroborate that with data, with sensory data. Um, Another thing, however, that, of course, we want to point out is that in the months leading up to the publication of the ODNI report, there were a number of stories at the debrief uh, that we authored, which gave a pretty good idea of what some of the instances of UAP that were examined by the task force actually were. And the reason that we know this is because there were photographs that we that they'd actually been online for years um, and they had been brought to the attention, one of the earliest ones, I think literally within the first week that we launched, uh, Tim McMillan uh, reported on a pair of photographs that I think there was only one photograph at the time, but I think it was one in a series of two or three that showed this balloon-like object. It's now been referred to as the acorn. Um, and after we broke that story, uh, many months later, George Knapp had also written an article where he had said that these were nicknames that apparently had been given to these objects in these photos. He had been aware of them as well. Uh, but the so-called acorn, I think blimp had been another term for one of the UAP in these photographs. Uh, these apparently had been photos that had been examined by the UAP task force. Now, a lot of civilian researchers pointed out uh, that the uh, the so-called acorn object, which was sort of triangular with these kind of points at the top, that it bore a remarkable similarity to a Batman balloon uh, that was sold at Party City. I have to say that I'm of the mind that to me, again, if we had to say that's there's anything that that object in that photograph most closely resembles, that would be it. Uh, some of my colleagues differ on that point, but you know, for my own part, I, I have to say that the 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 most likely explanation in in a in a case where we have a visual like that is what you probably want to try and go with as your working model. If I had to say I have a working model for what that object was, I would say it was probably a balloon. But again, many people have different attitudes about that. Um, however, another instance where we reported on something that was very likely among the UAP 
uh, phenomena that were uh, and, and information collected about UAP that the UAP task force looked at uh, had to do with a photograph, which to my knowledge has never been released publicly, but had references to it have been made. Tim McMillan uh, in his uh, very lengthy article, which we launched the debrief with on transmedium vehicles. He kind of introduced that term, I think, really into the public lexicon, although we have seen a lot of people uh, in government now using it and including uh, the Gillibrand Amendment, it appears there. This refers to objects that rather than just being aircraft, objects that can travel through the air and also enter water and travel through water or maybe even travel into space and, you know, again, traverse those areas just as easily as flying through the air. Um Although the term transmedium may be fairly new, the idea of the USO uh, as opposed to an aerial object, you know, a UFO that's traveling through water, that's nothing new. Project Blue Book had file after file after file about UFO sightings occurring at sea where Navy and other personnel from uh, U.S. government agencies, Coast Guard and others, observed UFOs going into or coming out of the water. And there was a book written in the 1970s by researcher Ivan Sanderson that looked at this entire aspect of the UFO mystery. So again, it's been long known that these uh, UAP or whatever you want to call them have been capable of transmedium transportation. But there had been a photograph reportedly showing a triangular, uh, triangle, triangle-shaped or triangular UAP flying up, presumably coming up out of the water, uh, and that a fighter pilot had photographed this flying over the ocean. That photo, to my knowledge, hasn't been released. I've never seen it, but there have been a variety of sources that have reported on that and people who have said that they've seen it. I'm betting that was probably something that was in the portfolio of the UAP task force. There was also an article that I did there at the debrief, uh, which uh, shortly followed a video that was initially released by documentary filmmaker Jeremy Corbell. Uh, And it shows a a rather ambiguous little kind of round object flying along over the ocean, and it descends and it goes down and it actually goes under the water. There have been some skeptics and others who have tried to argue it was a balloon. But again, if you've got a gas-filled object like a balloon, it would probably come to rest on the surface of the water would be my guess if it were a deflating balloon wouldn't enter the water and go down into it. This object does appear, and again, this is merely my observation and my you know, determination based on watching that video that so many others have seen, but the object appears to enter the water and continue on and to actually traverse that boundary, unlike how I would expect a balloon would do. So um, that footage, which we were able to confirm with uh, Pentagon uh, spokeswoman Susan Goff, um, was related to an uh, incident involving the USS Omaha, there had also been reporting about a, you know, a series of UAP sightings involving um, various different uh, ships that we had in service out there off the coast of California, the, I believe in the summer of 2019. That had probably also been something that the UAP task force had been looking at. And if memory serves, I think that uh, Goff's statement to the debrief actually said as much. The reason I point all that out is because, again, although there weren't specifics offered in the ODNI report, the debrief and other outlets who have been reporting on UAP developments and what photos have been reported on and some which have actually been released, videos as well in the previous case we discussed, these do give us some idea of examples of the kind of UAP that the task force had been looking at. But again, those are just a few of the 144 that we know have been collected mostly within the last couple of years. It's going to be interesting to see if we continue to collect data. And if in two years that much was collected, I mean, how much more frequently with new investigative branches like the AOI, MSG, or whatever else may come to pass, how many more UAP are we going to collect data on? How much more frequently might we, if we're actually looking for them now, how much more frequently might the military actually collect this kind of data? I mean, it's it's a compelling question. 
And during the time that the ODNI report was being prepared or afterwards, did you get a chance to talk directly to any of the key players at the time who were proactively pushing things through in Congress, like Senator Marco Rubio or Senator John Warner? I did not. No, I, I was not uh, able to speak to any of those individuals. Uh, I, I didn't speak to um, either elected officials or people who uh, were in the Department of Defense. Uh, now, we uh, certainly have reported, Tim McMillan certainly has contacts and people who he has <clears throat> in his reporting, um, he has spoken to and whose whose knowledge on these matters he has called upon in his reporting. Uh, and that's kind of Tim's background, of course, having a background in law enforcement. You know, he is, uh, you know, uh, an analyst. Uh, he's interested in intelligence. He's interested in talking with officials. Now, um, as far as who I did speak with, obviously members of the scientific community, because that's always kind of been my beat, uh, looking at the more science-oriented aspect of all of this. But as you can tell, I mean, with the majority of what we've been talking about here, Christina, having to do with the government and policy side, you know, it's the same way Tim often speaks with scientists. He's frequently in contact with Avi Loeb, as I am. And it's interesting because, again, when you get into this space and with regard to the modern UAP issue, you have to know a little about all of it. Again, what we might call the primary areas, though, I would say are, you know, what government is doing and how government is responding to this. Um, and then there is the scientific establishment scientific side. In other words, how establishment scientists, Avi Loeb maybe being the most visible example of that currently, how they are looking at addressing the UAP issue. And then again, there is the media or the fourth estate, how the media is reporting on it. We've seen significant changes in all three of those areas since 2017. And again, I think all of those things working in conjunction with one another have brought an unprecedented level of credibility to the topic and how it is perceived by the public. Definitely. In the last four years, we have seen a interesting progression. But now let's look ahead to 2022. Based on the fact that you have your finger on the pulse of this process, what do you feel we will see occur in the first few months of 2022? Well, right now, uh, as of when you and I are speaking, uh, the Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022 uh, is being stalled in the Senate. Um, again, I'd mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Senator Rubio actually has a pretty significant role in, in the decision to, to stall this, uh, but it hasn't got anything to do with the proposed amendment, the Gillibrand amendment that we discussed earlier. Um, so just to be clear on that, <clears throat> nonetheless, with the stalling of the NDA uh, or the National Defense Authorization Act or the NDAA, uh, it's very likely that we aren't going to probably see that passed into law uh, this year. Now, that's not an issue for the Department of Defense. I mean, the Pentagon can, can continue to operate without this being passed. And in likelihood, many experts are saying we won't see it passed probably until next year. Uh, but that being said, as we look ahead at tw uh, 2022, with the eventual, the inevitable passing of that bill, I mean, every other you know, Defense Authorization Act for the last, I think, 60 years has, has been passed. I presume this one will be too, even if it's a little late on arrival. But uh, when it does pass, it will be interesting to see. Uh, I and a number of other researchers uh, will be watching this very closely. We'll be interested in seeing if the, uh, the amendment that uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand had proposed and which has been co-sponsored by Rubio and a number of others, all of whose offices I have reached out to uh, with regard to this, it will be interesting to see if it ends up being passed into law, because if it is, the AOI MSG has already been established. 
it is intended by the DOD to replace the UAP task force currently under the Office of the Navy or previously under the uh, Department of the Navy. So will the AOI MSG be replaced by Gillibrand's ASRO? Or will we actually end up having competing agencies with different areas in which they operate, different purviews, slightly different missions, but nonetheless essentially doing the same thing, looking at UAP and their respective quadrants of government? I mean, that's an interesting question. And I'll just, uh, I can't name the individual, but uh, there, there is one uh, former defense official who I've kept in touch with uh, in recent days. I actually posited that very scenario uh, to this individual and said, you know, do you think that could happen? And the uh, the uh, def the former defense official said, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, a lot of us who are following this right now are asking, you know, how likely is it that we're going to see the Senate or, you know, the House more generally, Congress and the DOD butting heads? So looking ahead to 2022, that's certainly not off the table. I mean, that's that's a possibility in either case, whether it has to do with the passing of the uh, the Defense Authorization Act uh and the establishment of a totally separate organization, the ASRO, or if it is the continuation of what the DOD has already established, one thing is clear. Uh, the, the government has and will be looking at UAP with a new investigative body. And it's the first time we've had one of those, you know, a full-time investigative unit since Project Blue Book closed in 1969. Uh, and I would hazard to guess that our military is much better equipped to study this phenomenon now than it had been more than half a century ago. But, you know, again, one more thing I think I should point out. Uh, there was a rather controversial scientific study that was carried out, and this is really essentially what led to the end of Project Blue Book. Uh, and that involved uh, Edward U. Condon, an American physicist, and uh, a contract awarded the uh, University of Colorado by the Air Force to study what information had been collected by Project Blue Book at that time. And to analyze this and to say, okay, you know, what do we got here? What are we dealing with? And how do we move forward? The Condon Committee, uh, there's much that could be said about that, which we don't have time to say right now. But the Condon Committee had essentially been anything but a unbiased uh, analysis, scientific analysis of UAP. Uh, it had been very biased. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We could even do a show about that maybe in the future at some point, Christina, because it's very important to talk about that. It's the template, in my opinion, of how not to apply science to the UAP question. And it should be a guidepost moving forward for future scientific efforts. If scientists want to get to the bottom of what UAP are, as Avi Loeb has said many times, the skies aren't classified. And if we don't get all the information we want or need from government, scientists need to go out there and obtain information on UAP themselves. Yes, absolutely. And scientists need to remember what happened with the Condon Committee and where they failed, uh, in my opinion, with regard to their attempts at looking at UAP scientifically. But I bring that up because, again, they essentially came to the conclusion that, you know, there's really nothing to see here, no need for further uh, investigations into UAP. And Blue Book closed as a result of that. You know, again, now that we have a new investigative element, I spoke about the, uh, the, the new technologies, not limited to the ATFLIR targeting pod used by the Navy fighter pilots to obtain footage of these UAP, no less among them the infamous Tic Tac from 2004 in the Nimitz Carrier Group, right? Um, but Condon himself, shortly after the conclusion of the project, you know, he said, we're not saying that UFOs should never be studied again. He said, in fact, actually, maybe in the future, uh, with new technologies, uh, with with better equipment, it, it would be good for a government to revisit this. But right now, 
again, what he said, biased though their conclusions were, he said, we don't see any benefit to science from the Air Force continuing to study UAP. I would, I would argue uh, that, yeah, right now would be a good time for us to resume studies because maybe we are better equipped, even as Condon himself had said. And right now, I think it's very important for us to understand what it is that our Pentagon, you know, our military has termed a challenge to national security and a possible threat to aviation. I think it's very important that we get to the bottom of what this is. So then what can people do? Young, curious, new minds, maybe considering careers in politics or in the military or intelligence or even journalism who want this topic out in the open. What advice would you give? What can they do in 2022? Yeah, it's very important that we, you know, address young people who especially are maybe even in high school or, you know, who are in college and who are still, you know, asking, you know, how can I be involved with this? Uh, And if I am going to enter a professional, uh, you know, area like media or if I'm you know, looking at working in government, you know, if we've got young young women and men who are going to be enlisting for service in the military, I think it's very important uh, to keep a few things in mind. Um, Don't always Base your judgments on what appear to be consensus opinions um, or or traditional attitudes that any uh, bodies, government, academia, or others have offered on this topic. And and the reason I say that, I I don't say, you know, be a a nonconformist just for the sake of being different, although that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think individualism is, is very good and being different, you know, I embrace that. Uh, but but the reason why is because, again, when we look at, for instance, the Condon Committee, I've seen many um, science-minded skeptics who are often antagonistic toward the UAP topic. They'll refer back to the Condon Committee and its findings and say, this isn't good enough for the conspiracy theorists, the UFO conspiracy theorists. When scientists did look at UFOs and they did a good job. They found that there was nothing to see here and no benefit to science. But that's not good enough for those conspiracy theorists. Well, again, with respect to the skeptics, I myself have a lot of skeptical tendencies and have called myself a skeptic in the past. But I don't think that really a a a good overview, if one takes a good overview of the, the Condon Committee and sees what they did, how they did it, how they operated and what they looked at and the conclusions that they made thereafter, I don't think that it was an unbiased study. And therefore, I don't know that I would call that the landmark case of, you know, what science and scientists have had to say about UAP. It's an instance where some scientists had plenty to say about UFOs, UAP, but that shouldn't be the, you know, that shouldn't be the the line in the sand, so to speak. And yet I've seen many treated as though it is. This is the final word. Science says there's nothing to UFOs. If that were the case, why would our military be looking into these? Nonetheless, I still see many modern commentators, you know, skeptics and others saying, why is our military looking at this? Again, here's what scientists said about this decades ago. And I have to say, you know, do we really have, can we really proceed with the presumption that our military is so entirely inept, that they are inept and they have no idea what they're really dealing with and looking at, that they are miscategorizing balloons, birds, you know, ball lightning, all kinds of prosaic things as UAP, and they're willing to put who knows how much money now behind a, a new, a renewed investigation effort to try and study these. Is it possible, ladies and gents, that maybe we don't know the full extent of UAP interactions that our military has been having, and that maybe there are things that justify their interest in this topic right now that the general public hasn't been made aware of? Is it possible that maybe those civilian UFO researchers, contrary 
to the opinions of the Condon Committee, who after 1969 continued diligently collecting data on this, is it possible that there was a reality and that indeed they weren't crazy to study that? So again, my point is for young minds who are interested in becoming involved, with it, whether it's government or whether it's the media or whether it's the sciences, don't take for granted that, well, because Edward U. Condon or anybody else had this to say about UFOs, that it's not worth my time. There are many instances in the history of science where we can go back in time and we can look at ideas that seem crazy, but which are well-known and established scientific laws or other tenets of the mechanics of the universe that are well understood today, but they weren't at the time that they were first proposed or observed. That's how science works. Often things that seem unlikely end up with better you know, equipment, with better data, and with a deeper understanding. They become very likely. They become the norm. They become scientific laws. So for the young people out there who are interested in this topic, uh, read, but be diverse in where you read, where you look, what you look at. Be open-minded, but also be critically minded. Don't take everything at face value, you know, but, but do your homework, do your deep reading and, and try to come to logical conclusions about this. And if you too, like I have, have come to the conclusion that this is a meaningful topic, an important one, uh, that it may have much broader implications than just a challenge to U.S. national security or even a threat to aviators. If you think that this could represent something maybe related to one of the greatest questions of all time, are we alone in the universe? Then you should consider, again, thinking about how going forward in your life and your profession, how you can proactively pursue that as many have dared to do in the past, have been courageous enough to do. I do think it's a courageous area right now uh, for people to get involved with. And I hope that in the years ahead, maybe in 2022, we're going to see some new headway made thanks to the efforts of those who have pressed on for so long. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time to talk to us today. It is always my pleasure, Christina. Let's do it again really soon. You're listening to the UnX Network. KUNX DB, Kansas City, Missouri. Always such a pleasure to have Micah on Shifting the Paradigm. Always deep and insightful conversations. So yet again, this time flew by and we have to wrap up the show. Up next on KUNX Talk Radio is Fade to Black with Jimmy Church and his guest, Jason quit. Thanks for everyone for listening into the show. I'll see you here the same time next Tuesday. Be safe. And remember, keep your eyes on the skies.